On this episode of the Flophouse, we discuss the surprisingly long 88 minutes. Welcome to the Flophouse. Uh, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Elliot Kalen. And Stuart Wellington is not here. And I'm boo. like... Yeah. That jerk. No, I mean, boo. Like, I wish he oh, was here. Sure, that that as well. But um, unlike other times when he's absent, um, we don't have a special guest. Boo. Yeah. We tried. We tried. Everyone um, was busy. Yeah. Apparently, it, people were people were too excited about uh, sleeping off their hangovers from uh, last night's election. Yeah, we and, are uh, recording this um, a mere day after Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. Uh, Elliot, Barack Obama appeared on The Daily Show the week before the election. So would you like to take this opportunity to take credit for his win? Yes. All right. Actually, I'd like to take credit for uh, his win because of the fist bump that I shared with him about a year ago, I guess. Right. When he came, when he was he was a guest via satellite. Yes, uh, that last week, but he was a guest in person quite some time ago. And uh, due to a mishap involving a bag of Doritos that I won't get into here, we were unable to shake hands, and so we fist bumped instead. Right. And I think I and you gave think him you taught him. I think I fist bump that, and I think just I gave him the power to win presidential elections through my fist or through the Doritos. Uh, dust that was on your hand that, maybe yes, it was, that was radioactive doritos <laughs> dust the doritos dust that made it impossible for me to shake his hand because <laughs> i had not washed my hands since i'd eaten a bag of doritos yeah i must have looked like the biggest slob in the world because i was literally standing at the end of a line of people waiting to shake his hand and i'm just sitting there stuffing doritos into my face <laughs> as he makes his way down the line yeah. it was just like the mr bean when the queen the queen or the queen mother is going to the movie theater that he works at and he's literally like trying to fix his fly while she slowly <laughs> works his way down her way down the line so i like finished the doritos and i was like oh no i got dorito dust all in my hands looking around for napkins and didn't you know no, that makes it so much worse cuz before i had i had pictured the story like you know, you're in the editing bay or something. You're eating Doritos. He stops you, by. You wander. You like. You like exit the room, and uh, people are leading him out, and they're like, "Oh, Elliot, you know, say hello to to Senator Obama." And nope. you're like, "Oh." I knew very well that I was going to be shaking his hand. You still. had plenty of time to rectify the situation. <laughs> couldn't maybe re- dust it off on your pants. Couldn't resist the <laughs> siren song of Doritos, and then I didn't have enough time to clean my hands thoroughly. Is the well, but now the, the thing is, like this improves your anecdote tremendously. You're going to be telling your grandchildren, "Yes, the first black president, <laughs> I was unable to shake his hand <laughs> because of the Doritos." <laughs> to my love of Dor- In fact, you should probably get an endorsement deal from Doritos. I wish that Doritos had a series of commercials called Doritos Stories. <laughs> And I could tell that one. And they'd, yeah, they'd pay me in Doritos. The same way, I've actually fantasized recently about someday, if I am famous, doing ads for Popeye's Fried Chicken because I love their product so much. It's and true, just he doing does. ads where I'm like, hey, I'm Elliot Kalen. Oh, this is great chicken. And I'm saying that because I really believe in it. Well, know? I think I, I want to tell all the audience members and out there. And I feel like the, I would ask for a deal where I could walk into any Popeye's and eat for free whenever I wanted. Yeah, well, uh, anyway, I think, you were I think the only reason that... Elliot continues to do the show as he rockets to success. Is that I live um, mere blocks away from a Popeyes, 
And every time before the movie, he comes in with a box of Popeyes. So Doritos and Popeyes, both of you, if you're listening, <laughs> we are not too proud to take your sponsorship Don't money. give up on this endorsement opportunity. Yeah. So We are listening uh, to by fives of people. Uh, I think it's in part Stuart's absence, in part the film that we uh, watched. We're, I feel like we're having a little effort. We're to, a little uh, dragged down, yeah. Yes, Stuart it. definitely would have helped because he's full of energy and hilarious sayings, and also like he'd probably do something crazy or or silly, you know, or say something filthy. Yeah. But he'd probably do a dance. He'd probably do the the real Ghostbusters he'd be dance. Like, hey, dudes! Well, this movie wasn't so good, was it? You know, and <laughs> so forth. <laughs> he modulates his voice a lot when he talks. Yeah, but much lower than that. Well, uh, listen, this is like a really foppy, like, like so, dudes. <laughs> Eighty-eight minutes. Eighty-eight minutes is the most awesome movie ever. That was it. Just me, or did that movie suck? You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah my, again, impre- my again, impression of him is not very good. More of like a Paul Lind sort of Stewart. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound anything like Paul Lind. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Stewart's not here to end. And the movie itself was this is a movie we were both very excited to do on the show. Eighty-eight minutes yeah. starring Al Pacino. God's sakes, why? Uh, I think there was something about the fact that it stars Al Pacino, a once great actor who has let himself fall apart. In terms of not even in terms of like his life is fine, but in terms of not caring anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know. Yeah, that's true. But it's, outside, but it's not like it's not like you know William Holden or Marlon Brando or something like right. like an actor who had serious emotional or you know addictive problems and his life kind of fell apart a little bit. This is or Michael Moriarty who moved to Canada <laughs> and opened up a piano bar. Yeah, exactly. I guess, oh, but uh, <laughs> but it's this is Al Pacino who still is incredibly well respected. Could do any movie he wanted. He's a man who, or I get, at one point, now I feel like yeah. he can no longer open a movie and guarantee success. And also, the movie had the gimmick that part of it, at least, was supposed to be told in real time. Uh, the Al Pacino's character only has is it is called by a serial killer and told he only has eighty eight minutes to live. And then in theory, it's real time from that point right. on. Well, let's. Th- and also, there was the semen transference. Note, but yeah. that even that wasn't a big major plot point. We'll get to that part. Let's make it clear, though, for viewers who may be interested in um, watching this film. Say that you have eighty-eight minutes before <laughs> um, you, you know, your your tickets to um, Mamma Mia on you, Broadway. You're taking your lady friend to a show, yeah. and she's like, "Oh, I'll be re- I'll be ready in just a minute," and you know that means eighty-eight minutes. Yeah, from you think, personal experience, you know that she takes exactly eighty-eight minutes exactly to pretty herself up, and you're like, "Oh, I can pop in eighty-eight minutes starring Al Pacino." No, you can't. Yeah, put in one of the old Universal horror movies; they're all around eighty minutes. <laughs> but or read a book, <laughs> you know, do something else. This film is actually uh, an hour and forty minutes long. Uh, I have to and say long that at that, at, at that, if it was eighty-eight minutes long, it would have been a better movie. But nowhere, it would have been about as incoherent as it is right now. And that's also let's also make it clear that this is no uh, High Noon. This is also no Nick of Time starring Johnny Depp the, or Snake Eyes. Yeah, the real time component of it is um, it's massaged. It's the kind of movie where it's it's supposed to the the killer says like. You have 65 minutes to live. And then Al Pacino gets in the cab and says, I got to drive across town. You cut to him on the other side of town. And then the guy, and it'll be five minutes later in screen time, and the killer will go, you have 60 minutes to live. He's like, wow, he got across Seattle in record time. I don't know how big Seattle is, but I assume it takes more than a cut worth of time, like 20 seconds, five seconds. You know, Dan, are you all right? You look like 88 minutes. (laughs) It really took you down a couple notches. It really did. Uh, Maybe we should just pop in the Bratz movie and, and enjoy ourselves. Would you like me to go to, to explain the plot of the film, Dan? Yeah, go through it. Why don't you? Al Pacino is famous forensic psychologist Jack Graham. 
who's a college professor and is, as I mentioned, a famous forensic psychologist professor, so we're in a fantasy world already, who is most famous for putting away a man named John Forster on death row who supposedly hangs women from pulley systems and then kills them and tortures them, but, like, there were all, there's only circumstantial evidence plus the word of the famous Jack Graham to put him away, so there's questions about maybe this guy was actually innocent. He's right. about to be – it's the day of his execution. He's scheduled to be executed, and MSNBC is running a, what, four-hour-long live interview? I don't know. They, they, with it's him. a live broadcast. This is a movie where – Here's if I and maybe I missed something, but it seems that Al Pacino goes to his apartment, goes through his TiVo listings, chooses the interview on MSNBC, presses play, and then a little later calls into the interview yeah. as if it's still going. This is that like it's as if time stopped and doesn't restart again until he selects it on his TiVo and he can call in. But anyway, uh, it's the day of the execution and people who are close to Al Pacino start dying and. He gets a phone call, a mysterious phone call in that stupid serial killer fake voice that everything yeah. uses now. You have 88 minutes to live. Tick tock, doc. Tick tock, doc. You have 88 minutes to live, blah, blah, blah. And then, so he suspects everybody. He's a college professor now, so he walks into his class and immediately starts berating the students, yeah. assuming that one of them is the killer. And it goes on from there and makes less and less sense as it goes on. One thing that really sort of bugged me about this film was. Uh the fact that Al Pacino immediately takes this call at face value. There's no, there's no beat where he's like, "What? That's weird." Well, probably a crank call, and then something I am happens a to famous prove. forensic psychologist, <laughs> Dr. Jack Graham. Yeah, no. Instead, he instead he immediately walks into class and starts like looking, like searching the students' faces and uh, like ripping cell phones from he, their hands. He does everything short of hold a newspaper in front of his face with eye holes cut out and just watch people through it. <laughs> and I sort of also wonder, you know, if, if, if that's true, why is he still teaching his class <laughs> if, he, if he's going to take it at face value? And this is what I was trying to remember before, is that this movie is uh, real-time in so much as they show a lot of unnecessary in-between steps. Like, once the 88 minutes starts, it's like, well, we're going to follow him as he goes through every component of his day. <laughs> now he's teaching his class. Now he's driving back. Now he and his TA are going back home. The, he and his TA, played by Alicia Witt, spend a lot of time. The hang, lovely Alicia Witt. Spend a lot of time hanging out in his apartment. And it reminded me of uh, Ringu, the original Japanese version of the. Oh, I guess the feature film ver Japanese version of, of The Ring. Not the. I guess there had been like a direct to video version before mm -hmm. that, and this was a remake of it. But anyway, the one that was remade in the United States, where they get the phone. They watch the video. They get the phone call that says, You have seven days to live. And they're like, Oh my God. Oh, well, I guess I'll start figuring this out tomorrow. <laughs> or like, Seven days. Uh, well, I should rest up. Yeah, later like later in the movie, it's like, well, we've got two days left to live. Uh, let's go down to the library and research this. And it's like, oh, six o'clock, library's closing. Uh, let's call it a day. All they're, right. They aren't God, Elliot. They can't, they can't do the world in seven days. <laughs> no, they, but they take it a little slow. There's, let's say, a lack of intensity or lack of yeah. uh, believable well, anxiety. If Al Pacino is to believe that um, you know, if we are to believe that Al Pacino <laughs> if he thinks that someone's killing him, that's when the movie should kick into drive. <laughs> Let's take this out on the road. But instead it kind of ambles around for a while. It kicks yeah. into drive pretty quickly and then it has a very long flabby section in the middle and then his car blows up and suddenly things get kicked into into crazy overdrive where nothing makes sense. It makes sense to the no sense to the degree that I have a hard time sort of picking out 
what I want to talk about. Well, it was it's the fact that the killer, who is a human being with not without magical powers, seems to be in several places at once all the time. Yeah, like that's they're true. just ahead of Al Pacino. They're breaking into Al Pacino's apartment. They're also across town killing someone. They're setting up an elaborate pulley system in a public building that no one sees, making and then arranging for someone else to make a prank a, a phone call. And it's just it doesn't Yeah, well, all right. It's like there's an army of of killers and there's this and and uh there's a ridiculous red ha- herring that goes on forever with uh, Alicia <laughs> Witt's ex-husband Guy LaForge. <laughs> Which yeah. is a the, hilarious the, name. The famous uh, French-Canadian trapper, Guy Laforge. <laughs> but it's also like they're being chased by a, a man in – or by some figure in black leather outfit who's wearing a motorcycle helmet. And she goes, oh, that's Guy. It has to be. Really? Okay. I guess no one's no one else has ever dressed like that. Yeah. This is the only guy in well, Seattle who dresses like that. She's never a seen a motorcyclist before. That's what you got to oh, realize is um, in Seattle, you know, there's only two motorcyclists. <laughs> yeah, one thing about the the whole being everywhere thing is uh, the whole setup of this movie requires, like, the guy to continually be making phone calls to Al Pacino to be like, 88 minutes, 79 minutes, 76 minutes, 69 minutes. And, you know, Al Pacino will get messages like scrawled on his uh, overhead projector at class or then like keyed into his car's uh, paint job and you have to wonder like how does the the murderer know that al pacino is going to go down and get into his car exact exact 72 minute mark because he maybe he took a maybe he took a different route to get to the parking garage and he looks like this 72 minutes. According <laughs> hey. to my watch, I've only got 68 minutes. This is great. I got, I got some time back. And the killer is like watching from afar and slaps her forehead and goes, no, he's not getting the message properly. Ah, yeah. I gave away I gave away that the killer was a woman. Yeah, well, I was about to give it away because uh, there's a scene where uh, Lily Sobieski, right before that actually, or right after, in the uh, parking garage, gets beat up. And uh, later on, it's revealed that she's beat herself up to throw suspicion off of herself that was not there in the first place. <laughs> and uh, Al Pacino, you know, she's like, oh, I can't believe I let the killer get away. That was, he was so stupid me. of and me. He, and, he, and Al Pacino goes, don't beat yourself up. And then he says it again. As if, in case you didn't catch it the first time. Foreshadowing. Don't beat yourself up about it. This uh, movie is nothing if not thorough in reiterating things. There's there's several lines of dialogue that just basically repeat the same thing over and over in different permutations of the, the sentence You structure. also see uh, multiple – you see the same flashback of a celebration at a bar over and over again right. with no new information being <laughs> added every time. And at the end, it, it's one of those movies where there's a showdown between the hero and the villain in which it's made pretty clear what's going on. And then the hero has a phone call with somebody else in which he goes over what yeah. the plot of the movie was. Audience, we know that this movie was pretty crazy <laughs> and unbelievable. You're probably having a hard time keeping track. So, this is kind of like Synecdoche, New York. It's kind of hard to keep track of the first time you watch it. Yeah. So let's explain it. I was watching it and I'm like, all right, movie. Yes, this movie was crazy and it had a lot of twists, but that doesn't mean I didn't understand it. It just means it was dumb. It just means it didn't <laughs> it make also, any sense. It also doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's no sense to it. And even for like a fun, stupid movie, it's not. It's not fun. It's just stupid. It just doesn't make. It doesn't make enough sense that you're intrigued and want to know what's going on. 
And the yeah. whole thing is so like there's this very seedy undercurrent to it. There's a lot of women's bodies hanging from ceilings. Yeah, well, like, like the first nude woman we see in the film is doing like this crazy. She's she's standing up nude, brushing her teeth with holding one leg up in the air. Yeah, standing on one leg, and it's... I'm willing to believe there are women out there who would do that, except for the teeth brushing. <laughs> Like it's maybe if they're stretching toothbrush. in the morning, like you know, like, ah, I'm naked. I'm doing a little yoga. <laughs> I'm really like you know, I'm just gonna air everything out. And now, but but also to brush your teeth. That's multitasking gone amok. But even that, like, there's this, like, there's a part where it's revealed that Al Pacino's assistant, this woman, it was me. I I accidentally helped the killer because I got drunk and she seduced me and we made out in in your office and it was like wait a minute I didn't even know this character was a lesbian I didn't I don't it, it it's comes, not important Elliot but it Come comes on, out of important. it comes out of nowhere <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like that's kind of seedy but also like how was I supposed to put two and two together on that one when yeah. I don't even know I didn't even know that these characters the, knew each the other movie was like we we don't have a, we haven't had a close up on. A woman's panty-clad ass <laughs> as she hangs from the ceiling for a while. Let's have some casual, uh, pointless lesbianism thrown in. Yeah, but also like, but also like, it's a movie where you can tell Lily Sobieski is the villain at the end because her hair is much more wild and disheveled than it was yeah. earlier in the film. I guess they did. That's good directing. They did foreshadow that Lily Sobieski was a lesbian because, as you pointed out, she was dressed like Annie Hall <laughs> in the class. I hadn't even thought of that. That's right. Yeah, she's she's wearing a tie and a vest. Yeah, and a shirt, which of course means if this is 1952, she must be a lesbian. Except for she was also in love with the killer on Death Row. So. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I guess she was just playing lesbianism to get to the information she needed. It's mm. never quite clear if she's in love with the killer on Death Row or if she's just enthralled to him in some way. It's a movie that if, like, if they established at the beginning of the movie that mind control and hypnotism existed in the world of 88 Minutes, the movie right. would make a lot more sense and would be much easier to take. But this movie, oh man, a lot of style, huh? There's it is, wow. Stylistic flourishes. It's, it's a movie that has a lot of cracks in the foundation of the story, and they said, let's plaster over this <laughs> with a lot of unnecessary camera moves. A lot of zooming in, a lot of uh, slow-mo. The best, the best thing is that Al Pacino remembers his, his backstory is that his young sister, when he was 28 and she was 12, which is quite a gap in ages, his young sister was murdered, so now he's trying to get revenge, I guess, against the idea of murder. But uh, yeah, let's, I, he, I was so angry at that like long <laughs> monologue because no one in movies goes into a uh, field just because they were interested in it or they had a talent for no, it. No, they need it's an inciting incident. Childhood trauma, and yeah, Al Pacino's uh, young sister was killed by a serial killer, so. Now he hunts serial killers. But when he remembers her, his memories are shown as if, I guess, they're like 16-millimeter film from the 70s. There's a lot yeah. of, like, scratches and a kind of Occasionally general like yellowish... Image. Yeah, double image, general yellowish color filter. But it's as Al Pacino's so old that he's remembering in a <laughs> film stock that is no longer used. Yeah, well, you know, back in back in that time, uh, eight millimeter film was how people made memories. It, it also, yeah, it didn't help that they showed a picture that's supposed to be him with his sister when he was young, and it's like they used a picture of young Al Pacino, and it's like, yeah. oh, that's what he looked like when he made good movies. Yeah, that's what he looked like when he made Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. Oh. Sorry. Oh, and also he likes driving his own car for some reason. His car gets blown up, and he goes up to a cab driver, and he goes, Listen, 
How m- I want to drive your cab across town. I'll give you a hundred dollars. And then the rest of the movie is him driving this cab driver, driving this cab around while the cab driver sits in the back seat. <laughs> yeah, and you wonder why, you know, if he's gonna pay, if he's gonna rent the cab, he can just pay the cab driver. Like, why does he need to be in charge? It's not like he's even driving like super fast. No, like, like the cab driver's no like, stunts. I'm not gonna break the law. I'm like, oh, fine. I'll rent the cab. You get in the back and. No, he's just like driving sensibly around town. And and more than that, there's a scene towards the end. My wife pointed out there's a scene where he's sitting at a red light and it turns green and he, he's like he, he, all the cars go around him because he's transfixed. He's putting the pieces together. He's looking at a file. He's making some sort of revelation that I actually could not follow what he was Something about someone together. using an alias for something. Yeah, but there's clearly just him alone in the car. And then There's no he, one in the backseat. He drives to the rendezvous, rendezvous with the killer, and he he runs out, and the cab driver gets out of the back, being like, "Hey, is, is, is it all done yet? Do you, like, <laughs> do you need me anymore?" And you're like, "What well, was he taking a nap in the back? Was <laughs> Apparently he in the sleeping in the backseat." <laughs> I've always wondered what it'd be like to drive around in the trunk of this thing. <laughs> as long as you're gonna take over, uh, heck, seems like a good time. <laughs> it's there's another character in it who is Al Pacino's, I guess, police contact, mm-hmm. who. Is it's one of those things where it's like, I'm gonna have to arrest you. Your fingerprints and DNA are all over the bodies. You've got access and motive. You know everyone who was killed. We found your belongings on the scene of the crime and your signature. Wait, no. And your semen were, was in her <laughs> vaginal canal, and as your, he said. And your semen was in her vaginal canal. And Al Pacino goes, "Don't you see it's a frame up? Give me ten minutes." And the guy goes, "Okay." It's elementary police work. Come on. <laughs> Classic frame. They job. teach us. They teach us at the academy. If it looks like an airtight case, <laughs> there's probably a problem with it. So yeah. give the guy extra time. And it also, it's implied, I guess, that Al Pacino was set up to have sex with a woman. Then they killed her, removed his semen from her body, and injected it into another dead body to implicate her him in that murder too. Yeah, two and murders. This, He's like two murders for the price of one semen. This is this is something that's brought up. Almost casually in conversation and then dropped. And it's such a horrific idea. I'm just like, there's something so disgusting about it. And it's like, no, let's just throw it in the script. Well, Whatever. and again, that was, some, that was also a development that happens like at the hour 20 minute mark. Likewise, <laughs> the like, audience is getting tired. We got to wake him up, put some semen in there. Well, but, but he doesn't even get accused of like these murders until like the hour mark. And I'm like, shouldn't this have happened? way earlier in the film to add a little more urgency. I mean, I know that he's going to be killed in 88 minutes, apparently, and that should add enough urgency, but not the way he's wandering around. <laughs> apparently, we need another shot. <laughs> That's the thing. I bet, like, the killer stops calling him after a while. It's almost like the movie forgets about the 88 minutes thing until yeah. later on. And then it fi- just turns out that the killer arranges a rendezvous with Al Pacino and then waits for the countdown to get to zero, and then it's just going to shoot him. It's yeah. not like he's been injected with a poison that goes yeah, on off in 88 minutes. There's no bomb set to go off in 88 minutes. It's not, as you pointed out, crank. He hasn't been given the Hong Kong cocktail, <laughs> and his, his heart's going to explode or whatever. There's really no reason for the 88-minute deadline to be there. Yeah, as you pointed out, like her, her plan would have gone a lot easier if she just warned him at the top, like, you got 88 minutes to live, left him alone, and then an 88-minute <laughs> mark came up and shot him. <laughs> Or even the like, end. what she really wants is a confession from him that, that he committed perjury and that the guy in death row is probably innocent. But she accomplishes this through a series of mysterious murders and crazy clues. And like her plan would have been that much harder for him to figure out and that much easier for her to get the information if she didn't go around murdering random people that he knew and then placing his DNA all over. It's like she's like, I'll get him arrested 
thrown in jail, and then I'll have access to him to get this taped confession. Well, no, right. that's not really how it works. Yeah, I guess that she was like, okay, I can't just go up to him and threaten him to get this taped confession, because then clearly... <laughs> I better spin a web of deceit. Yeah. But then he's like, but then she's like, I gotta discredit him, implicate him as a, a murderer, then kill him. I, I don't know, like, it seems like... It's not a well thought out. You discredited him as a. Uh, is his confession worth anything? <laughs> like I, I don't know. It's it's not it's not wish, a mastermind plan. I wish Stewart was here to answer these thorny legal problems. Yeah, I was talking about how things are reiterated uh, too much in this film. Like things happen twice when they could have happened once. That's another issue I have with the uh, climax of the film. Not once, but twice does Lily Sobieski have one of the red herring characters in the film call Al Pacino and confess that she's the person uh, mm-hmm. behind everything. She He has Deborah Cara Unger's character, who's like the, the dean of the school or something. She's some kind of dean who's always wearing glasses that are way down on her nose. Yeah. But it's also like, I, this is this is some school in, in Seattle that, that with no ethical standards, because like Al Pacino and his law students or criminal investigation students, whatever they're doing, they go to a bar to celebrate the fact that he convicted a ma- he led to a man's conviction. But the dean is also there, and the, the professor and his students were all drinking together and dancing. And then he goes home with one of them, and the dean is there, like watching right. this. I don't know. And she's seems to have some sort of romantic anger over the whole thing. Like it seems like a very unprofessional school. Right. I guess is what I'm saying. If you want to take Jack Graham's class, just know he will come on to you. And he will grab your uh, chest as he throws you to the ground to avoid a bomb going off in the car, as yeah, that he does with Alicia Witt. He was, Al Pacino was very clearly groping Alicia Witt at one point, it seems. Uh, but it bothered me, though. Like, Deborah Carr Unger's character, uh, the killer, had call in with a false confession. And then she also had Alicia Witt call in with a false confession, both of them to lure Al Pacino to the rendezvous point. I'm like, wouldn't one have sufficed? Or even just the killer saying, Dr. Jack Graham, meet me at such and such place. You've got ten minutes to live. Tick tock. Because he wants to know who it is. Like, he'll just right. go there. I will reveal myself to you. Finally, <laughs> this game of cat and mouse will end. <laughs> this game of cat calls mouse and mouse runs around for a while and then goes to his apartment and sits down for a little bit and watches TV. Yeah. Calls into MSNBC to rant angrily. <laughs> They've been, they put up the picture on the screen that says Dr. Jack Ram, and as you said, it looks like they caught him coming out of a club in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's like a, this, it's like a perp photo of early Sean Penn. <laughs> That's the, I, the idea of a famous forensic psychologist, I guess, is one of the things that gets me. It's the same way that... It's like Roadhouse. Well, that's the thing, yeah. famous uh, bouncer. Where, yeah, I think Mike Nelson writes a thing about that. Like, the idea of a famous bouncer is <laughs> doesn't make any sense in Roadhouse. And the same thing here, like... Even the guy who wrote, like, Mindhunter and, like, Silence of the Lambs was partly based on his experiences, whose name I don't remember at the moment. Like, even he is not so famous that everybody knows his name. Like, or that if he called into a TV show, they'd be like, oh, of course, well, yes, the famous, oh, yeah, oh, you're known everywhere. This is, oh, well, of course, Dr. Jack Graham. (laughs) Well, come right this way, sir. He's like, I don't know, like, the way Henry Kissinger was a famous club goer and, and dated lots of movie stars when he was... Secretary of State, like that, but he's a forensic psychologist. Yeah, with no actual power out in the world, like Henry Kissinger. He does have a badge that I guess says power that Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. <laughs> that Dr. Kissinger stopped by for just a moment. <laughs> I've got to go. I enjoyed watching 88 Minutes with you. I think, uh, do you think, Dan, it would have been easier to watch 88 Minutes if we didn't know that this is a new world 
with Barack Obama as president, and we won't have to worry about movies like this anymore. <laughs> I feel like this is part of the change that we can down. believe in, is that yeah. 88 minutes, there's not going to be nothing like this again. Yeah. Well, for me, it was like, okay, Barack Obama's won. Yay. Hooray. Everything's, everything's wonderful. And then like I'm like, oh, no, no. I have to return to my, my normal life, which includes watching movies like 88 minutes <laughs> on purpose. I got to tell you, I was for so, a voluntary <laughs> podcast. I want to make that clear. I was so excited about eighty-eight minutes and being as depressed about it as I am now. It makes me second. It makes me double think my excitement about our eventual watching of Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, <laughs> <laughs> which is another one I've been very excited about. Yeah, that's that's slated for uh, December. I'm really worried that there's going to be a scene where uh, Natalie Portman confronts Dustin Hoffman about how his semen was found in a dead body <laughs> in the back in the back closet of their magical toy shop. I wanted to say just one last thing about this film uh, and that was uh, man so many red herrings. It is full of red herrings. Full of red herring characters including uh, one uh, security campus <laughs> security guy named like something DeFranco I remember. I yeah. don't remember. And also a doorman who's just kind of goofy <laughs> who looks like he wandered in off the set of Newhart. But the campus security is like it, it's like CTU on twenty four. Like it's the most. There's screens everywhere. Lots of like plexiglass, smoked glass mm-hmm. uh, partitions. But also, he's talking to the security guard, and the security guard's like, "Yeah," I'm gonna, because they're setting him up as a red herring. He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go to the police academy, become a real cop, not have to take care of these snotty college kids, especially these rich bitches." And he's like, and Pacino's like, "Yep, gotta go," and walks out <laughs> and calls the police and asks them to look at this guy. But he's like. What kind of, again, the security guard has so much rage about the people, right. that, the women that he has to protect. I appreciate know? the efficiency of that, though. Like, <laughs> just like Within two sentences, he says something potentially incriminating. Like, the, the anger comes floating to the but surface. Even, even, like, the suspicious doorman. They go to Al Pacino's building. He's like, where's so-and-so? His doorman's like, ah, oh, he's not here. I'm a temp. Uh, there was a guy came by looking for you. Dropped off a package. It's right here. Didn't leave his name though. There's no return address on this. Yeah, I don't know. Like, why even bother with all the with all the side? I'm surprised they didn't make the cab driver a, a suspicious character. Surprised they didn't have like his mailman come by and drop stuff off. Fresh direct delivering the mail. <laughs> I don't remember ordering all this fresh direct. Ah, your name's right here on the order form. You don't want these kiwis? <laughs> Here's a. Suspiciously large eggplant. <laughs> I don't know what's in the eggplant in the scenario. But. I can't wait to find out though. In eighty-eight minutes, too, one hundred and seventy-six minutes. The eggplant protocol. Oh, I forgot how uh, Al Pacino. He's he, as you mentioned while we were watching it. Al Pacino's performance is fairly. He's not overdoing it the way he does yeah. in say The Devil's Advocate. There's no hoo-hawing. He does have some yelling scenes, but they're not. It's like he's getting angry. So it makes sense. But at the end of the movie, there's like a flash of. The Al Pacino we've come to know and love, where he's ta- he's taunting the real killer on the phone, and he says to him like, "Your plan failed, and now you're gonna die." And then he takes the phone and just throws it <laughs> off the seventh floor of a building. Yeah, it's completely unnecessary. And you're like, "Wait, that's evidence." Yeah, the phone being the killer, the Lily Sobieski's phone that she was using to contact the guy on death row. Yeah, a piece of evidence, but he just takes it, throws it off the off the balcony. Here's what I think of you, phone. <laughs> I hope you can hear it landing. Yeah, and the other, uh, before we move on, and I want to, um, the other weird thing about this movie is it's... It's his obsession with pulleys? I was going to say this strange, like, pro-evidence tampering stance it takes. <laughs> because it turns out that, you know, yes, Al Pacino uh, tampered with the well, evidence to get a conviction. That's in the alternate ending. No, but they say that in the, the actual he makes, movie. He makes his confession, but I feel like it's that's under duress, you don't know. 
Well, all right. I think that they're making it clear that he. Uh, well, he coached a witness at least. He, yeah, that he did at least something unethical to push this through, and oh, and the we witness... see that the killer is actually the killer. But then, like the movie is like making this justification, like that's all right. As long as we're sure that the killer's the killer, we don't have to deal with the criminal justice system. And like, and I'm like, wait, but the criminal justice system is there because we cannot be sure <laughs> of these things. Nope. As long as we got Jack Graham watching out for us. <laughs> uh, the movie opens, by the way, we, we should have mentioned this, in the year 1997. And they they really <laughs> recreate true. the world of... As someone who lived through 1997, yeah. uh, I really... This is how I, I remember, remember it, well. which is... A newspaper with the headline, Princess Diana Dies. And a close-up on the date, 1997. (laughs) Close-up on the date. One of the characters says to the other, who would want to kill Princess Die? And then uh, they go to sleep, and one character's radio starts playing, Quit playing games with my heart, with my heart, with my heart. And it was like, wow, we really are in 1997, aren't we? And then it goes nine years later, and you know we're in... 2006, I guess. But. And it was really important that they really set the time. <laughs> they remember 1997 when all those serial killers were running around? <laughs> well, that's what, another thing that's great about it is like, why nine years later? Really doesn't matter. <laughs> Could have been three years. Yeah. <sighs> you can ask a lot of questions. It's just like that, that, way. that two year why gap. 88 in minutes. 88 minutes. So, uh, Dan, are we going to do our ratings? or? Yeah, sure. Stuart's not here, but. Um... I feel confident he would say it was a bad, bad movie. Yeah. Is this a good, bad movie, a bad, bad movie, or a movie that you liked in some way? I'm going to say the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes <laughs> were like great, crazy, bad movie, but man, there's so much just boring stuff in between. I was, I was really. I was really encouraged by the very beginning of this movie, which was just... Which is balls-to-the-wall crazy. Yeah. It it starts... Uh, you in, you are introduced to two characters who are sisters who live together. All you know Twin about, sisters. Twin sisters. All you know about them is they're sad that Princess Diana died. Suddenly, a killer arrives. There's a, there's a shot where someone turns around and the camera zooms towards their face as they see the killer. <laughs> then it cuts to a cat. Then it cuts to the the other character, the exact same thing. Turns around, camera zooms through their face, and then as they see the killer, and then cuts back to the cat again. Yeah. They've each been strung up in close succession in the exact same sequence of shots. What's weird, though, is like the killer's MO is that he hangs people up by pulleys, and then he cuts them very slowly with what looks like a tiny pizza slicer. But it's like... So you have you're having to believe that he drugs them, then he takes a while drilling holes in the ceiling, screwing in the pulley, then he's gotta run the rope through it, he's gotta test the weight of the pulley to make sure it's gonna hold. Right. Maybe he has gotta put some anchors in just to make sure the structural integrity of the ceiling has to be done right. Then he ties them up to the pulley, then he's gotta pull them up into the air, and then he's gotta set it so it holds that they're yeah, still in the it's air. Be a counterweight of some kind. You know, it's a very elaborate system. Speaking of MOs of the killer, uh, this reminds me, the reason that it's 88 minutes, by the way, is that the killer of Al Pacino's sister said to uh, Al Pacino as he left after killing the sister, it took me 88 minutes, referring to the amount of time it took her to, him to just dismember her. First of all, what, Something a, weird, like that. what a weird thing to say <laughs> as he leaves. Like, uh, by the way, I thought you wanted to know, 88 minutes, that's how long well, it I took. think he thought Al Pacino was the guy he asked for, to come by from Guinness, <laughs> for the record of... Well, but that's the other thing I was going to say. If it takes you 88 minutes to dismember a 12-year-old, uh, you're just a lazy killer. Or very weak. He might have had very weak arm strength. Yeah. Or he was using, like, a nail file. So what were you going to say? Uh, ignore my cat trying to knock over a lamp <laughs> behind you. And just keep worrying it's the pulley Seattle Slayer killer. Uh, I was going to say it's a bad, bad movie. I'd say it's very poorly made and 
I was sorry that Alicia Witt was in it because I, I think she's usually very likable. She's uh, cute as can be. The only thing that uh, that made it for me was uh, Lily Sobieski's crazy accent, which <laughs> is vaguely Eastern European or Dutch or Irish at times. Or yeah, someone write in and tell us uh, what that accent is. Tell us where she's from because we yes we could we easily discover that information. Yeah, but, but we're lazy. We like people so. This that... is the Flophouse Lily Sobieski. Where where's she from? Contest. <laughs> Rather than finding the information out immediately by using Google or maybe Wikipedia, we would rather wait, you know, two or three weeks. Or if or if you're us. listening, Lily Sobieski, warum kommst du? <laughs> if I remember my college German correctly, where are you from? Uh, where do you come from, to be specific? But let's 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 leave her accent behind. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I can tack a course bravely to the future. I'm really worried now that I'm going to have a dream where Al Pacino <laughs> accuses me of pulling his semen out of one woman and putting it into another woman. <laughs> it's an obvious frame-up! Oh, man, everyone has that dream, though. It's like being naked at school or a test. The semen, semen Pacino dream. Or, or like a dream where like you need to go to the bathroom, but you can't find a private place to go. Yeah. Or nuclear war. That's a dream I get a lot. Do you get the nuclear war dream? No, I think I think about it so much in my waking hours that my brain is tired of it by the time I go to sleep. Yeah. I used to have a dream very regularly that I was being chased by Lee Van Cleef, from uh, for a few dollars more, and just like chased <laughs> through time, like we would start out in the old west and run straight through into the present, wow. and then when we got to the pre- present, present, someone would stop him and be like, "Let him go," and then I just leave. This is like a great 1970s TV show that you never had the chance to make. <laughs> <laughs> time Chaser. Yeah, there is a movie called Time Chaser though, but uh... starring Cleef. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what they call them. Just Cleef. <laughs> just Cleef. I don't think anybody ever called him that ever. <laughs> I did. Just now. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, touche. <laughs> Point to McCoy. Anyway, um, we should go on and make our movie recommendations, which will be a lot shorter now that Stuart's not here. Now that we've dismembered Stuart in 88 minutes. 88 minutes. That's all it took. Why don't you recommend something? Well, what am I going to recommend? Uh, I just this past Monday saw uh, Synecdoche, New York. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut on in feature length film, I guess, and uh, it's gotten kind of mixed reviews. I guess people are not happy with. I don't know. It's a movie where like you either like it or you don't like it, but it's such a. It's so much Charlie Kaufman's. I assume like his personal vision on film of what he wanted the movie to be that you kind that you admire it. I enjoyed it a lot, even though it's a really rough movie to sit through at times. Like it's a very you know, serious, bleak movie, but there's some really funny parts. It is like 88 movie, minutes, a movie that feels longer than it actually is and takes a little too long, but uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was very good. I read uh, one of my least favorite explanations for a movie on the IMDb message boards. It's a movie that kind of skips forward th- through time very erratically. And, the IMDb uh, message boards for people who are too stupid to watch movies. <laughs> but there's, uh, did you see it, Dan, or no? No, I haven't seen it. Uh, I don't want to say too much. Then there's a lot of like surreal moments in it, things that aren't super logical but make sense on a thematic or emotional level. Because it's you know it's a Charlie Kaufman movie and it's a movie. What are you gonna do? And I read uh, one of the explanations online was obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is in a coma starting from this point in the movie. Everything after that is just his imagination in the coma and replies that were like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, now I get it. It's like, okay, well, you just took this kind of singular artistic vision and turned it into 
a bad, you know, yeah, like it was all a dream. Yeah, or like a bad psychoanalysis where it's like it's like if someone watched eight and a half. Like it feels like Charlie Kaufman's eight and a half to a little to a certain extent. Like if you watched eight and a half and you were like, ah. Oh, I guess he's just – if someone hit him on the head and he's just remembering his <laughs> life out of order. That makes sense. Yeah. It reminded me I, – I saw – Well, I also love – this happens actually on the IMDb message boards a lot, I feel, where someone puts out a an explanation that has no real support in the text of the film. Yeah. And then if people call them on it, they're like, well, everyone has their own opinion. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's not – but – you have to work with the materials yeah, that are given. You can't just make things up. It's not like I watch, you know, like the Philadelphia story, and I'm like, this is these are actually um, Earthlings who have been put in a zoo on Mars. <laughs> <A> space zoo, <laughs> yeah. They're working out there. The reason why there's such uh, competition for this one woman <laughs> is because there are so few women on the planet. But it reminded me of, uh, I, I was a big fan of Memento when it came out, and I remember freshman year of college there was like a thing like, get together and watch Memento, and just a couple people showed up, and was like, oh, this is a good way to meet people, and uh, I went, and we watched it, and it's, you know, and so, and everyone was like, oh, man, I'm kind of having trouble figuring out the plot of this thing, that was confusing, which is, listen, people have said the same thing about Synecdoche, New York, but it's like, if you pay attention to it, you will understand what's going on in it, it's not nonsense, but uh, people are like, I don't understand, and this one girl goes, here's the way I figured the movie out. He's none of the things he remembers actually happened. He's just a serial killer who's convinced himself that he's tracking down his <laughs> wife's killer, and that's why he's killing all these people. And I was like, "Well, you just took a kind of well, like interestingly done examination of what memory is and the nature of identity and the past, and turned it into a very shitty serial killer movie." But as a uh, college get to know you sort of event, it was a success because you're like, I don't want to be friends with <laughs> this like, girl. That's true. I got to know them, and I decided I didn't want to have anything more to do with them. To hell with you, jerks. Lisa, everyone knows Memento is basically just a serious version of Dana Carvey's hit film Blank Slate. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah. Oh man, Christopher Nolan, what a what a rip off artist. What a rip off artist. Carvey was the auteur. <laughs> Plus, he made that movie uh, Batman Begins. It was a total rip off of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the only one who noticed this? I don't understand. He just added a little beginning to it. And then he made that movie, The Dark Knight. It was just a rip off of Batman Begins. <laughs> Way to copy yourself, Nolan. How many movies have you made? Five, six? Already copying yourself? Whatever. So I would like <laughs> the to. Is the movie Insomnia? Total rip off of the book Insomnia. <laughs> Total rip off. Of the uh, Swedish film, Insomnia. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's based on a Swedish film. I was about to say, I was about to base it on the Stephen King book, Insomnia, which has nothing in common <laughs> with either movie, Insomnia. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but you were going to recommend something. Yeah, I was. If you're looking for a bad film, which people often are if they're listening to the Flophouse, and you know, usually we recommend good movies during this point uh, of the of the show, but but 88 minutes has broken your soul. Well, I mean, there's a difference, obviously. Or else we wouldn't have a rating system between a bad movie that you have no interest in seeing and a bad movie that is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. And uh, Winter Beast is a great bad movie. Uh, I watched it on the day after Halloween with uh, some friends who were visiting from out of town. And I had it because I knew it was this uh, horror movie that had a reputation. It was released to DVD in 91, or or I guess the release date, at least, uh, in general, is 91 on like IMDb and on the, like, the Netflix sleeve. But the film, every shot in it looks like it was like a 1960s, 1970s Yellowstone tourist postcard. 
uh, and it really has that feel. There are all these like knickknacks in it. They, the, the set dressers like <laughs> wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to distract from the actual action of the film. It's like, hmm, I wonder if I can work a wooden Indian into this. <laughs> Or like a, a that velvet, director was Frank Oz, <laughs> a velvet painting of a buffalo, <laughs> and um, it has a bunch of uh, stop motion in it. Like, and I love old like stop motion monster effects. And uh, I, what I look, level stop motion is this? Is this Ray Harryhausen level or like Equinox level? I haven't seen Equinox, but it's. Oh. It's really not Ray Harryhausen well, level. Well, then, like, Ray Harryhausen level or, like, Phil Tippett level? The... Or more like Willis O'Brien level? How many stop-motion animators can oh, I gosh. name? Let's see. I watched the making of, and the guy who did the stop-motion actually did some stuff for, for, like, liquid television. So Oh, okay. So is it, like, Henry Selick level, or... Anyway, you were saying? Uh, he knows what he's doing, but it's still a terrible movie. And the funny thing is, like, there are these sequences where there's, like, a fun monster effect... Uh, and you're like, okay, this movie showed some like imagination and creativity, and then in between, it's just bad movie dreck, like Man of the Hands of Fate level of inept filmmaking and padding and just hilarious dialogue. And so, if you're looking for a bad movie that won't disappoint you, as 88 Minutes did for both of us. Certainly. I would recommend Winter Beast. Mr. Magorium better be good in well, a bad way. I'd like to note for the audience that. Elliot is currently putting his shoes on. He can't wait to get out of here so much. Listen, 88 <laughs> minutes has tainted this for me. He's he's putting his shoes back on as we are still on the air. I'm tired, okay? That's I fine. I had to stay up late at work last night. And then yeah. I had to go to a party with the cast of 30 Rock, and I didn't get to talk to any of them. <sighs> Jesus. It was, I was at a bit... I, I Quit lording you, your glamorous life over me, Caitlin. the Comedy Central party. 30 Rock was there. Gina Gershon was there. I saw her in person. Uh, who else was there? I apparently got there too late to meet Padma from uh, Top Chef or uh, Padma from Star Wars. <laughs> Who else was there? I'm over wow. here desperately seeking my brain to think of something that might be impressive to say, and I have nothing. No, no, I'm sure. Well, you said you had an open house for grad students today at your office. What was that all like? What was that like? I'm going to punch you <laughs> as soon as we get off the air. So there's no proof. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll edit this part out. Nah, I'll just leave it in. Well, anyway, in the absence of Stewart... Yeah, where is Stewart, anyway? He is in, I believe, Hotlanta, Georgia, teaching people how to paint toy soldiers or something like that. <laughs> you don't really know. know what he does. He trains people. They send him all over to train people, which, to me, is hilarious, because I know that he's actually good at his job, but... He all... get, they gave him an award. Yeah, but all I can think of when I think of Stewart is, uh, you know, him shambling into the apartment <laughs> with like a tall boy of Coors Light, <laughs> and then changing into a tiny bathing suit. Yeah, in the middle of the uh, the flop house, just emerging from the bathroom in a speedo. We miss you, Stewart. I guess is what we're trying to say. Is he wearing his formal scorpion belt bu- buckle belt? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. What a great guy. Like, this is let's not as fun him right him. now. No, let's go home instead. But uh, it is, but hopefully he'll be here next time. Yeah. For Mr. Magorium. We're not even going to do that next time, probably. I think we're going to do 27 dresses. Awesome. You know what? Let's just do a string of movies with numbers in the title 88 <laughs> Minutes, 27 Dresses, 30 Miles to Graceland. Uh, what else is there? Come on, we can name some more. Um, too um, Fast, Too Furious. Seven voyages of Sinbad. That's no, a good movie. that's a good. Well, it's a movie with good effects in it, like Winter Beast. 
<laughs> Come on, day, 30 Days of Night. They, I'm thinking of so many good movies with title numbers in the titles. You got nothing. Uh, 21, that movie about blackjack. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that, that would be a pretty good one for this. Because uh, they took a true story, made everyone in it much more attractive. And much less Asian. The, like, the actual guy was like an Asian-American, and they're like, nah. Oh, I didn't know that. This is a Hollywood film. <laughs> Caucasian all the way. Caucasian is kind now, of like Asian. Now after Barack Obama's president, that's all going to change. Well, people. this is, uh, my friend Matt Pack has a joke in his stand-up routine where it says, uh, the people who hate Barack Obama the most are movie producers because now how are they going to let you know that a movie is taking place in the future? Uh, it used <laughs> to be the shorthand for that was black president, yeah. but now we've, we're, we're at that point. That yeah. was the thing. Chris we've, Rock's head of state is no longer funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, because before it was hilarious. <laughs> Well, for other reasons, it's not not funny. But the that's what that's what's so great is like people are always like, "Where's my flying cars? We're supposed to be in the future." We've got a black president coming up soon, and CNN had holograms on. Yeah, it's newscast the other day. We're living in the future that was promised to us, and it's not the Blade Runner bad future where it's always rainy all the time. And what's his name from Deadwood and Newhart is aging too fast. Eighty-eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, let's sign off. I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Elliot Kalen. I'm yeah. sure I'm Wellington. <laughs> Good night. <sighs> I've lost my will to live. <laughs> I want to do podcasts. Fuck up, Dan. We can do this. Don't let 88 minutes be the one that breaks you. I think it's Stuart's absence. Yeah, it kind of hurts me. sad. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>